I have two very special people with us this morning on stage, uh, David and B. Paul, who many of you know, and although they've only been here uh, a little less than a year, they have already made uh, just a huge impact in their commitment to uh, what uh, uh, church looks like in our community and also uh, abroad and internationally. And so every now and then we will share stories of generosity, uh, stories that really communicate the the purpose of our value, which is to live with open hands and open hearts. And so, David and B, it's wonderful to be with you. And will you share with our congregation today um, specifically about what prompted a season of ministry for you that you've been involved in now for a few years? And it's Indonesia, and this is a ministry that you have been committed to now, and you're serving them actually from abroad here in your neighborhood, which is here in Liberty. So will you share with us, how did this ministry even come about? Yeah, thank you for that introduction, Corey. We are very privileged to share this today. And in a short 11 months, it looks like we've been able to fool everybody here into <laughs> thinking we're doing good. But this is my wife, B, and as in Bumblebee, she calls me her honey. Um, <laughs> although you can all call me David. But if you want to be really honest about it, you can just call me handsome. We've been married for 32 years, 29 of them quite happily. <laughs> Wouldn't you say that, B? Anyway, about 14 years ago, I was working in Connecticut uh, as a sales manager responsible for Southeast Asia for Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, managing the renewable energy portfolio. The market in Southeast Asia developed enough that the company sent us overseas to live in Jakarta uh, for a period of about six years. We were there from 2014 until 2020. When we went there, uh, we were seeking to find out what God is leading us to do. And at the time, we started attending a church called Jakarta International Christian Fellowship that had a ministry going on to refugees already in place. So we thought perhaps God wants us to join him in what he's already doing among refugees there. So we started to invite them home, uh, two or three at a time, five at a time, sometimes even 60 or 70 at a time, over to our home for a meal. B is an excellent cook, the best cook I have personally met. And she, is, uh, she learned how to cook Persian food and Iranian food and so on because these Afghan refugees and Iranian refugees were away from their home for many years. And the condition of refugees in Indonesia is very different. They don't have a status in the government, so they don't get any benefits. They cannot go to school, send their kids to school, or have a legal work. Uh, so they are on the streets, many of them. So we started to befriend them and find out what their needs were and see how we can meet those needs. We realized soon enough, because they are illegal, they cannot send their kids to school. And because they are illegal, again, they cannot work legally. And so we tried to start meeting those needs that we saw in front of us, educational, physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. And so because of that, because <coughs> of your commitment to responding, literally having charter buses bring these community members to their home for a meal. Can you imagine a couple of charter buses showing up at your house this afternoon? Uh, it would take days to prepare the kilos worth of food. Uh, and uh, there were obviously these incredible celebrations of inviting them to your home. But what are, what's some of the other fruit that you all have seen from your years of serving with open hands and open hearts? Um, like men David mentioned about education, we started uh, by uh, pairing one um, refugee child with a, uh, with a teacher. See, at that time, we were also uh, mentoring some in, uh, international students uh, at this teacher's college in, in, the, in our uh, town. 
So we started, men, uh, we started pairing them up one-to-one, -one, and then we got more and more kids coming. So um, by the grace of God, in September 2019, we started New Hope Learning Center. And uh, we taught them four subjects, and then uh, with many volunteers, and then, it, then COVID hit. So now we are online bigger than ever. We have uh, eight subjects that have been taught by 30 volunteer teachers. And these teachers are teaching from Singapore, from Adelaide, uh, Australia, um, of course, from Indonesia, and our own son is teaching from the United States. So uh, we are ministering to 86 students, and uh, um, apart from the uh, classes for the students, we also teach uh, Farsi and uh, English to the um, adult. So, um, and before this, before COVID, of course, there are other things like crafts and cooking classes. Isn't that wonderful? Will you help me celebrate with them on that? And so we also decided that there are other needs that we need to meet. These people are living on the streets. So we started to take one family at a time into our system. We rented a room for them and paid for food and living expenses. We started with just one family of two uh, people. And now we are supporting about 213 of them every month with rent and living expenses. By the grace of God, we were given a substantial amount of money by a mission agency uh, that will help us support these people for a couple more months. And apart from the physical needs, we are also trying to meet their emotional needs. We try to arrange counseling for them. Many of them have PTSD-like symptoms, and so we try to help them with that. We arrange sports activities every week. We have twice a week sports activities for the children. About 80 children take part, and other music lessons and things like a whole series of things, eye clinics, medical clinics, and all that. We try to meet all of their needs. We also found out that these refugees who come from many different countries, but primarily from Afghanistan, are seeking to know the truth very much so. They come out of Afghanistan thinking that Islam is the best and Christians are infidels, but when they come to a Muslim country, Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim country in the world, they realize that it's not the Muslims who are helping them. It is Christians who are reaching out to them. So the, oftentimes we get the question, hey, can you teach us about Christianity? We never evangelize, believe it or not. We always have people knocking on our doors asking to know about Christ. And at the moment, we have 180 or so refugees going through uh, Bible studies weekly. And about 90 of them have come to faith in Christ in the last two or three years. And <laughs> praise God. So we, um, we have trained those refugees to lead their own Bible studies. We have 16 leaders that every week lead a group of about 10 to 12 people in their group. And seeker classes, discipleship classes, leadership training. We spend a lot of time uh, uh, training and mentoring leaders. And we started a Farsi church recently, three months ago. We have roughly 70 people come every week. Every Sunday, we have a Farsi service at 5 p.m. So we have tried our best to meet their needs in every way possible, and we are blessed to be at the right place at the right time where God has brought people who are seeking him into our midst, and we have the privilege of joining him in that work. And so all of this because of a commitment to live with a gospel-centered reality and an opportunity to live with open hands and open hearts, letting your generosity share the gospel. So if there's a challenge or, or a charge that you could give to every individual watching today, what would that be as it relates to their own personal journey of generosity? As believers in Christ, we are called to make a difference. And that includes our workplace, our home, um, across the street, here in Liberty, or um, abroad. 
So as um, for David and I, we have seen this transforming uh, power of the gospel as we see lives being transformed. So we truly believe that, um, that we ought to live with open hearts and open hands. And we are called to be ambassadors. Once we follow Christ, we are called to be his ambassadors and representatives and missionaries wherever he placed us. I'm an electrical engineer. In fact, Corey, it might really shock you to know that I specialized in high voltage engineering. You know, when we moved here... He's good at dad jokes, too. <laughs> well, don't ground me for that, okay? See, they're uh, going to keep coming. I do need to find an outlet for my electrical puns, you know? <laughs> but anyway, um, I w as I was saying, uh, when we joined PV about 11 months ago, um, we had to severely compromise on our requirements for a church. We really wanted to find a church which had very good-looking pastors, but you know what I mean? With Corey next to me, for example... <laughs> We had to compromise on that. You know, Corey, I really like you. And I only tease people I like. And those who are blessed with a long-suffering wife. Yes, absolutely. Jamie could attest to that. I do look up to you. You know, I have to. But anyway, when we joined our church uh, here, we are very blessed that PV has an emphasis to reach the neighborhoods as well as the nations around us. Um, Brad, uh, Pastor Brad's initiative that he started recently is very exciting us, uh, for us to be a part of to see how God is going to use uh, the people at PV to reflect the light and love of Christ in our neighborhoods and beyond. We are so thankful to be a part of that initiative. So if you want to find out more about the ministry that David and B are, uh, are leading right now, uh, you can go to the website, which is called newhoperefugeeministries.com, and you can find out more about that, and you can support them if you would like to. As a church, of course, uh, we are dependent upon our congregation being generous uh, with their tithes and with their offerings, and we're grateful for that. If God is, is prompting you and moving you into a direction of giving to our church, uh, there's several ways that you can give. You can go to pleasantvalley.info to give online. We have offering boxes in the back of the worship center and the chapel that you can give to, and we're grateful for ministries like this and for individuals like David and B who are committed to uh, transforming the, the, the world with the influence of of Jesus through uh, the message of the gospel and generosity. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray for you both uh, and thank you again. Will you help me thank them one more time? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for David and B. Paul and their family, Lord, that you have blessed our church with over the last 11 months. We thank you for their witness. We thank you for their testimony. We thank you for their heart of mission engagement here in Liberty in their own neighborhood, just across the way here, as well as across the ocean in Indonesia. We thank you, God, that they have been courageous and bold, and they have met the needs of individuals so that they will be drawn to the hope that is found in the gospel. We love you, Father. We thank you for the gift of your Son and for the power and the promise of your Spirit that lives in and through us according to your Scripture. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Yeah, one more time, would you give it up for David and B? I'm glad that Corey was doing the interviewing of, uh, of them for fear of David liking me way too much with his, uh, his compliments. Hey, I am so glad that you are uh, you're with us today, whether you're uh, in the worship center, whether you are... Uh, 
in the chapel or whether you are online. My name is Merle, glad to serve as lead pastor here. For those of you who are a guest, uh, we'd love to be able to help you on your journey. If you have questions about what does it mean to follow Jesus, uh, we'd love to come alongside, answer those questions, point you to him. We can do that a number of different ways. You can do it in person after the service is over with. You can talk to one of the pastors. It'll be here in the front of the building or in the chapel or in the back of the worship center. And if you're online, just go to pleasantvalley.info, fill out the communication card, and uh, let our hosts know online if you have any kind of uh, questions or needs that we could fill for you, we could answer for you. So you've been hearing me say over the past several weeks that May is Mental Health Awareness Month. We've got individuals that are out in the commons that would be glad to answer any questions that you have about our ministries here. You can go to our website and you can find information on our website on the CARE page. Um, we're doing Stephen Ministry Training if you have a heart of compassion and you'd like to learn how to express compassion in a way that is helpful in a way that is gospel-centered. The training is going to be happening this fall. Again, you can talk to one of the staff members in the care ministry or one of our ministry partners. Or there's something that's coming up that I want you to, uh, I want you to mark down. June the 18th. No slides are going to come up, and I'm just going to tell you about it. June the 18th. It's only happening once. It's called Facing Life's Challenges, What Teens and Preteens Are Saying. And so if, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, and you'd like to know what is it that our teens and our preteens are challenged by, what are they facing, and how to go about getting some tools to help you in conversations with them, we'd love for you to come. Again, mark it down June the 18th, and then just go online and look for some more information. So uh, we are jumping in a brand new series today. And basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce the series over the next couple of weeks because I can't say everything that I want to, even though you think I do. I can't say everything I want to in the amount of time that I have. So we're just going to jump into it today. And in order to help us think together about this, would you agree with me that we're living in a time where it seems like everything that is not nailed down is coming up? That's kind of the way it feels to me. And if you've studied anything about the American culture over the past 50, probably 60 years, the boundary lines for what we value, the boundary line of what is standardly accepted, the boundary line for that which is moral has been shifting. Truth has taken a vacation for a lot of people. In the 1950s, and even early into the 1960s, there was in this country a consensus of morality, pretty much a consensus. There was a general belief that we all held certain things to be true. According to sociologists James Patterson and Peter Kim, there is absolutely no moral consensus today. Everyone is making up their own personal moral codes. It's like everybody has their own Ten Commandments. And in an increasingly secular culture, most people who don't believe in any kind of fixed moral standard that we honor or we observe, 
are now using phrases like this. Well, whatever is true for you, or she's just doing what is true for her, you should go out and find and formulate your own truth. And the idea, the idea that everybody gets to define for herself, define for himself what is right and true is a recipe for disaster, disorder, and despair. And we're seeing it all over our country. Standards are important. Would you agree? They're, they're important for a number, of, a number of reasons. Number one, they help, maintain, they help maintain order. For instance, have you ever played cards with certain people and uh, they change the rules every time you play in order to benefit them? Have you ever played with people like that? Super competitive people and it's like, no, there's no standard, there's no rules and it just becomes, it becomes chaotic. Can you imagine a world without a physical standard, a physical law of gravity? And just, just like there are physical laws that keep things in order, there are spiritual and moral laws that govern and keep our human relationships in order as well. Standards protect us from harm. They're like protective boundaries. God's given us a huge playground to play in. God's given us an awfully big yard, but there are boundaries to them, standards, values, that if we get outside of them, we could be harmed. Whenever a parent tells a child, don't play in the street, it's not because a parent is somehow cruelly restrictive and a downer when it comes to fun. When a parent says, do not put your hand on a hot stove, it's not because they're a joy kill, it's because they want to provide protection. And then standards help uphold that which is meaningful. For instance, the biblical standard of marriage of monogamy is to make a relationship between a man and a woman for life meaningful and safe and sacred. Whenever you read the book of Judges, and I don't know when the last time was that you read the book of Judges, if you want to be depressed, read the book of Judges. If you want to just like, if you want to read a book that is in so many ways so descriptive of the way humans just go about doing a cyclical pattern of life, just read the Judges. It describes the longest, bleakest period in Old Testament history. 450 years, framing the extension of Joshua's conquest to, of the Promised Land to the time of Samuel, 450 years, more years than our country has existed, this entire era was riddled with horrific, horrific acts uh, of evil, bloody conflicts and tales of human misery. It was an age of absolute moral chaos. Do you know why? I'll tell you in a minute. During the time at intervals, when the people of Israel would go desperate for God, they would cry out to God for assistance. They'd cry out to God for help, and what would God do? God mercifully would raise up an unlikely leader to bring guidance to 
the, the people of God, to help them from being conquered by whatever enemy and to help protect them from slavery. And they were known as judges. And the judges weren't necessarily upstanding models of spiritual virtue, but God would choose them from time to time to empower them so that he could provide deliverance for the people that he loved. And then this is what would happen. Peace would be restored to the people of God. The nation would get things in order. And then after a while, they would fall back into the same pattern of living outside of the boundaries of God's parameters and God's standards and what was best for them. They would live a long stretch of sin and apostasy. It was a cycle that happened over and over and over again. And then God would bring judgment. God would bring chastisement. God would bring correction to them. And it would just happen again and again and again. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. There are two places in the book of Judges where the writer sums up why that time was so miserable. It says this, Judges 17.6 and Judge 20, Judges 21.25 says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Summarizing 450 years of moral chaos with a phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Statement is fitting for where we are today in our world. And that's not to say that there aren't good things that happen in the midst of it, but the truth is we are suffering from a time of a kind of chaos like maybe we have never seen before. Our series today is addressing the idea, who do you go to for the establishment of standards and boundaries and values? Who are you listening to? And the truth is, there are a lot of voices that come to us. There are voices from the past. There are voices in the present. There are some that sound incredibly, incredibly attractive simply because they have a cultural feel to them that feels attractive. And it feels like if we listen to what they have to say, then life is going to be good and life is going to be right. But it doesn't mean that they are necessarily telling us the truth. So our sermon series, starting today, is Jesus Says. I wanted to, to call the sermon series, Say What? That's what I wanted to, to call it, but our communications folks didn't think that would be the best thing to call it, and so, but whenever we read some of the things that Jesus says, we're going to be doing what my little three-year-old grandson says, What? What? Because Jesus does say some things that are incredibly strong and direct, but always loving and always filled with truth. So what we're going to do is we're going back to the Sermon on the Mount. We spent some time in the very first part of the year focusing on the flourishing life, and we spent time on the Beatitudes, Jesus describing the character qualities of people whose lives flourish. And we said to flourish is to be so filled with God that your life is fruitful and your life is 
fulfilled. Well, at the very core of a flourishing life is a life that is based upon what Jesus says, in particular, about this whole idea of living righteously. So that's what we're going to be doing. Followers of Jesus don't have as their mantra, I do what is right in my own eyes. We don't say that. Instead, we say something like this, I do what is right in Jesus' eyes. I do what is right based upon what Jesus says. I do what is right based upon the standards and the values and the parameters established by God and fully lived out in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever you hear the word righteousness, I don't know what comes to your mind, but let me give you kind of a, a biblical grounding. Righteousness has everything to do with being in right relationship with God, doing right in our thoughts, in our beliefs, in our actions based upon who God is and living right by other people. Righteousness is, is vertical and righteousness is horizontal. And Jesus spends an enormous amount of time in the Sermon on the Mount emphasizing that flourishing people do what he says. Flourishing people are committed to righteousness. So we're going to look at one passage of scripture for a couple of weeks. I'm only able to get into the very first part of it today, but we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 20. And basically I just have one point. And the point is this. Are we doing what Jesus says? Are we living according to the standards that Jesus absolutely fulfilled and empowers us to live out. Jesus says this, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, Whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. I want to leave that up for just a minute. Whenever the first followers of Jesus heard him say that, do you know what they did most likely? In their minds they went, say what? Because the most righteous people they could think of were the religious elite and the religious leaders. And yet Jesus establishes a greater righteousness that he expects of and enables his people to live. And that's what Jesus talks about pretty much in the remainder of chapter 5. He talks about what is it like to live a greater righteousness. So let me set the context. You still with me? 
want to make sure you're still with me. What I'm doing today is I'm having to do a little more teaching than preaching, so you have to stick with me in order for us to be able to interpret what Jesus is saying in a way that means something to us. Jesus had just been talking about the importance of followers of Jesus publicly living out a righteous life by doing good. He said, let your light so shine before people that they see your good works, they see your righteousness, but they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so he has just talked about that, and now he's diving into this whole idea of what is the fundamental understanding of what it means to be a person who does good, who lives a life of righteousness. And he needed to clarify this because the religious people of Jesus' day seemed to miss the spirit of God's expectations and they got fixated on minutia and things that weren't really a part of the heart of what God had to say. They misinterpreted righteousness and doing good. And guess what? It's still happening today. People will misinterpret the point of what the Bible is about and get focused on things that really aren't at the very heart of what the Bible is actually teaching. So let's do some definition of terms, because for you, you may be going, hey, I don't know what this means, and that's okay. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, what does he mean by the law or the prophets? Now, the law technically would have been called the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, otherwise known as the Pentateuch. And the prophets was simply another way that in Jesus' day, it would be everything else that's in the Old Testament, everything else that was in there, the, the prophets as well as, as well as the Psalms, the wisdom literature. So what's Jesus basically saying right here? I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament emphasis and truth. People would often look at the Old Testament, and the way of looking at law in the Old Testament is they, they would see three different kinds of laws that are in the Old Testament, ceremonial, civil, and moral. The ceremonial law had everything to do with how Israel would go about doing their worship. There were guidelines about how they would do worship. And the primary purpose of the ceremonial law, how you go about doing worship, was really to point people to the coming of Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we don't necessarily have to abide by those things because they were fully, completely fulfilled in the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the principles behind the ceremonial laws still stand in that we are to worship and love a very holy God with all that we have. Civil law applied to the daily living of the Israelites, how the Israelites were supposed to go about living their lives. And there's a lot of those laws that aren't applicable because our culture is completely different. Society is radically different from that time and setting. But the principles behind the commands are timeless, and they guide our conduct. Jesus demonstrated these principles by his example. Jesus fulfilled 
the ceremonial laws by his life. And then there was the moral law. And that's probably the one that the religious leaders were thinking that Jesus was playing fast and loose with. The moral laws had everything to do with like the Ten Commandments, direct commands of God that require obedience from us, moral law that reveals the nature and the will of God that still applies today. And Jesus obeyed the moral law completely. And you're going, big deal. What does that have to do with the meeting that's coming up on Monday? And if you're asking that question, it's a great question. Again, we're asking the question, who do you go to to establish standards in your life? Who is it that you're listening to? And why in the world does a Christian listen to the person of Jesus Christ when it comes to living a life that flourishes, that's based upon right living with God and other people? Let me see if I can help us. Go back again to verse 17. Don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish but fulfill. Why did Jesus make that statement? We can suppose that Jesus made that statement because the religious leaders of Jesus' day thought that Jesus was not being observant as a Jew. They believed that Jesus was coming along and he was just going to demolish everything that had gone before him and invalidate the entire Old Testament. But Jesus was not about that at all. Jesus wants us to understand that he lived and he taught not in contradiction to anything that is in Old Testament revelation. However, when it came to the religious traditions that religious people put on top of the basic teaching of the Old Testament, Jesus disregarded that. He wasn't going to give in to oral traditions and man-made rituals and rules that were not in keeping with what the Bible had to say. What was happening in Jesus' day? is religious leaders were saying that our traditions are on equal standing with the Old Testament and as authoritative. And Jesus saying, ain't no way, Jose. Those things do not line up. Man-made traditions do not carry the same kind of weight as the Old Testament, what God has said. And so maybe we can think about it like this. It appears that Jesus is implying that religious people were actually destroying the foundation of the faith. It was the religious elites that were destroying the law and the prophets by their traditions. They were robbing people of the word of God and by their hypocritical lives, they disobeyed the very thing that they claimed they were there to protect. So just pause for a minute and let that sink in. How many of us at times find ourselves robbing non-believers of the truth of what God has said because we live in willful opposition 
to the truth that's been revealed. Now granted, all of us could say, hey, we're hypocritical to a degree, but that doesn't let us off the hook. Just because there are times that my words don't match up to my beliefs is no reason to go, well, hey, you know, people are just people. Jesus was coming down hard on religious people who said one thing and did another, and they did it on purpose. And yet they were saying, hey, we're here to protect the faith. Warren Wiersbe said it well when he said this, the religious leaders thought they were conserving God's word when in reality they were embalming God's word so that it no longer had life. So I think about my life and I go, do the people that I engage with, who are both believers and non-believers, as we have conversations, as we talk about the faith, as they observe my life, do they see in me a faith that is vibrant and alive? Or in any way am I by my religiosity embalming the truth so that it has no life whatsoever? Good Christians can become so religious related to traditions that don't have anything to do with the Bible that they rob Christianity of its vibrancy and its life. Jesus came to show us what it's really like to live for God starting in the inside and going out. He isn't looking for artificial religion. He's looking for real righteousness from within. He wants us to choose to live by the very standards that he came to fulfill. Now, let's go back to this. Jesus said that he came to fulfill all that's in the Old Testament. He came to fill it up. He came to bring it to completion. His life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, and his teachings means that history, as far as God is concerned, gets summed up and filled up and brought to completion in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus says himself, the salvation, historical, theological, moral manner what the Old Testament anticipated, what the Old Testament predicted, what the Old Testament primarily taught. This is a mind-numbing statement that I'm about ready to say. Jesus says everything from Genesis to Malachi is fulfilled in him. It all gets complete in him. Everything is finally at its pinnacle. In him. Everything that was predicted, everything that was promised, everything that was hoped for finds itself wrapped up in him and him alone. He fulfilled the law by his obedience to it and by his sacrificial death through which he satisfied the law's demands for those who trust him. Somebody put it like this. The law and the prophets were like pencil sketches, and Jesus is the painting. Jesus fills in all the details 
of the pencil sketches of the Old Testament. He's the full color, panoramic picture of what God is about. Now, in the Old Testament, here again, I'm trying to make the point for this. Why would you want to listen to the person of Jesus? Why would you want to listen to him? And so one reason that you want to listen to him is that he is the, the summary. He is the fulfillment. He is the completion of what the Old Testament has to say. And let me see if I can, I can kind of draw this together. In the Old Testament, there are all kinds of texts that predicted and prophesied and pointed to Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the earth. For instance, I'm only going to give us a few. Peter, the apostle, was proclaiming the truth about Jesus after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and Jesus' appearances. And then Jesus went back to heaven. Peter, filled with the Spirit of God, began to proclaim the truth about who Jesus is. And Peter goes back to the Old Testament and he's saying that Jesus really is a fulfillment of a promise Way back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 through 19, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whatever whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. Peter is using that text to convince his Jewish countrymen that Jesus is the fulfillment of what was said back in the Old Testament. He's going to be a prophet like Moses that God had promised, and his authority and his words are so powerful that you don't want to treat them with any kind of disregard. You don't want to reject the words and the authority of Jesus. You go to the birth of Jesus, and it's marked by all kinds of fulfillment of prophecy, like Micah 5.2 speaks of Jesus being born in Jerusalem. Matthew 2.1 says that Jesus was indeed born there. And maybe the place in the Old Testament, more than any other place that is full of Jesus, the place that is more full of Jesus than anything else is his death. The, the Old Testament gets culminated in the death of Christ. For instance, the law in the Old Testament had a whole system of sacrifices that were established in order to deal with human brokenness and human sin. And so for 1,500 years, year in and year out, the people of God would bring their sacrifices for their sin. And the offerings signified that sin is a big deal. Sin destroys people. Sin is offense to God. Sin brings punishment. Sin brings guilt. Sin has to be dealt with and atoned for or we are crushed by it. Thousands upon thousands of dead animals over a 1,500-year period of time were really pointing beyond themselves to the coming of the ultimate sacrifice. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everything that the sacrifices we're pointing to is culminated in the final sacrifice for our sin. His name is Jesus. 
Maybe I could illustrate it like this. Haddon Robinson explains the relationship of Jesus to the Old Testament by saying, take a look at uh, the details of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper and, the, and the, how it even points to Jesus. So he's making this, how do you see the Old Testament pointing to Jesus? He goes, in a similar way that this particular painting points to Jesus. And he says, think about the, the beams. They're all pointing down to Jesus right here. And then you think about how the very center frames out the person of Jesus. And then you have the hands of the disciples that are pointing towards Jesus. And he's saying in a similar fashion, it's like in the Old Testament, you have prophets that specifically point to Jesus, and then you have like the sacrificial system that, that itself points to Jesus, but it points in types and in, and in images. Everything that the Old Testament looked forward to is summarized in the person of Jesus. Again, Haddon Robinson said it like this, just as the fetus is fulfilled in the adult human, so the law and the prophets are filled full in the words and the works of Jesus. So my question comes back to this. Who are you listening to to give your life its standards, its boundaries, its morals, its values? And is whoever it is that you're listening to have the kind of pedigree that Jesus does? Can you point to whomever it is, whatever system that you have given yourself to, to be the guiding principle of your life, can you say that it has the kind of quality and the gravitas that the person of Jesus Christ does? He fulfilled all that God was looking for. And then let me just give us some words of application and we'll be done. If God went to a great deal of painstaking detail to save us from our sin through the person of Jesus Christ, the painstaking detail of making sure that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies and summarized and fulfilled the typologies and the shadows in the Old Testament about the one who is to come. If God was willing to go to that much trouble, don't you think that you matter to him? And don't you think that if you have not said yes to him that you would want to? I mean, if God would go to that much detail in order to rescue us from our brokenness and our sin, he is a great God. He is a good God. And why would you not want to entrust him? Second of all, when you read your Bible, look to Jesus as the central story of the Bible. Now, it's not like Jesus is in every verse, but the whole of the Bible points to him. And if God is making sure that the whole of the Bible points to him, is he the central person in our story? And then third, God has a standard of righteousness for us to live by. 
Let's choose to live the standard that Jesus lived by. Let's live a life of righteousness. Right with God and doing right by others because Jesus said. Let's pray. God, today for me was just a time to really love you with my mind and to think a little bit differently about the person of Jesus and to think about why in the world would I want to listen to him and why are his words impactful whatsoever. God, I thank you that there was no other person that could have should have, would have fulfilled the law and the prophets. There was no other person given among human beings whereby we must be saved, and his name is Jesus. There's no other person who did the things that Jesus did in order for us to have life with God. God, would you forgive us for too often taking Jesus lightly? Forgive us of those times where we are doing what is right in our own eyes instead of what is right in your eyes and instead of what Jesus has said. My prayer, God, is... For those of us who are followers of Jesus this day, that we will step back again into the teaching of Jesus and let his teaching and his life be the ultimate guide for our lives. And as we do that, we will be able to see the, the false narratives that are out there, the, the false lesser stories that want to captivate our lives and instead to be fully and totally captivated by the person of Jesus. And God, I know that when we do that, we become salty salt for the world. We become bright lights for the world whereby people are drawn to, drawn to you. So God, I thank you as well for the gospel that even in those times when in our human weakness we fail to live up to the righteousness of God, there is for us grace, there is forgiveness, there is the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us once again to live in total dependence on you. God, would you use us to raise the tide of goodness and morality and life wherever we are for the sake of the gospel and for the good of other people? And if you agree with the prayer, would you say amen?